Tim and I really haven't been able to coordinate a good welcome home tigment, tigment, <laughs> Tim segment. In the meantime, we've got some news to get to, or news. Good Lord, folks. I'm so sorry. I'm all over the place. I promise you I'm trying to get through this as fast as I can, but as professionally as I can. Oh, by myself. Oh, by myself. <laughs> Alright, all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 299 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is not only the return of Tim, but it is also the Honorable Karen Sage episode of the SLS cast. Because it turns out that the Honorable Karen Sage is the district court judge, the presiding judge of district court 299. In Travis County, Texas. And with that wonderful little bit of Honorable Karen Sage knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us once again from the wonderful state of sunny, sunny California, it is... Tim! It's funny because you say sunny, but really it's supposed to be thunderstorming tomorrow afternoon. Don't ruin the illusion, Tim. (laughs) You come from this golden sunshine state. I'm actually reading a, uh, you know that I have this love of a particular series of books called The Uncle John's Bathroom Reader. And they not only have general knowledge books and stuff, which are really fun, I really enjoy those books, but they also have state-specific books. And I have the one on Texas already, of course. I have one on all of the presidents of the United States, at least up through Bush 43, because it was published back in like 2005 or something. But I just picked up the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader for the state of California. Oh, is this in preparation for a trip, perhaps? It could be, but it was, uh, in all fairness, the the book was actually purchased for me back in August before I knew anything about impending California trips. Although I have a really, really spiffy Zippo. (laughs) <laughs> that oh. signified a trip that I'm taking. Although, I mean, I'm sure, it, like, the book isn't, like, about travel. Like, it doesn't say, ooh, go here, go there. I mean, is it more like, this it is a good d- bathroom where you can go though. to the bathroom? Well, that's, yeah, that's the idea. They they make tons of jokes about it being a bathroom reader because the series of books started 30 years ago when there were no smartphones and the internet was nigh but a gleam in a programmer's eye. They would have these books because people would, as we all have come to know, read a magazine or they'd have books stacked on the toilet tank or in desperation people read shampoo bottles and what have you. And so that was the idea. And so they make puns about using the restroom or whatever, but it really is just a general purpose knowledge book about whatever it is. And so the main series is all sorts of different crazy stuff. And the and then they have special series where they plunge into specific subjects. Plunge? And 
Yeah, it's plunge. I like that. Because, I like you know, that. Yeah. And, and they're, like their motto is go with the flow kind of a thing. So that, again, lots of lots and lots and lots of toilet humor. <laughs> I mean, it is toilet humor, but it's the toilet humor you can get behind. And so, <laughs> hey, t- there's our episode title. Tim comes back and toilet humor you can get behind. <laughs> and so this one happens to be about California. But one of the things that they that they have in there aside from really cool things about the history of California in various fun aspects, they also have things that are like, oh, well, this is where this particular national park is and why this national park is special, so you should go here. Or Bakersfield gets a bad rap, but it's one of the most historic cities in California because X, Y, Z. And then one of the most recent things that I read about was when California wine actually went on the world map, which was back in 1976, as it turns out, because France, being all snooty snooty, decided that they would let the California wines come in for their world medal competition as a nod to America's bicentennial. Now, nobody expected them to win. This was really just kind of a fun gag, you know. Oh, let's let the stupid Americans come in with their terrible wine and we'll have some fun with it, but we'll do it in the spirit of their bicentennial. The problem was they did it as a blind test and California won. Hands down. Like, three of the top four white wines were California wines and three of the top five uh, red wines were California wines. And, I mean, it just blew everybody away. They were like, say what? And that launched the California wine craze from 1976. And it now it's like a $15 billion a year industry or something like that. Yeah, and we're not talking about Trader Joe's three-buck chuck here. We're talking about primo, <laughs> primo wine. You know, $9 wine, is, like is, your barefoots. <laughs> that is literally what California wine was known for prior to 1976. Barefoot? It was known for Thunderbird, uh, Ernest and Julio Gallo from way back, you know, from when I was a kid. Those were the cheap wines that you would drink. Oh, and they're still around. They actually help provide grapes to various vineyards around certain parts of uh, California. Because they actually, believe it or not, the Gallo family... I, I th- it was a family, right? Like their last name was Gallo. They, I mean, they own all oh, yeah, these different yeah. it's, it's vineyards. A, it's a huge thing. Yeah. yeah. So like, they like cultivate grapes and sell them to various various people that make the right decision in not saying where they got their grapes from. But sometimes if you get your your wine handler a little bit tipsy, they'll uh, provide you with some juicy details as to where the grapes actually grow. And who owned them beforehand? But enough about me and my wonders, wonderful books on California and other Uncle John's things. Your shit books. What? Yeah. Your I, shitter I mean, books. Let's face it. I mean, you go to the John, right? Uncle John. But um, how the hell have you been, Tim? We have not really spoken, spoken in a month. We've loosely texted back and forth and a couple of notes about the show here and there. We did. How the hell are you? Like a what wet have you been sock. Doing? Well, um, originally I was taking this month off so I could study 
Pro Tools editing software, and I didn't do nearly as much of it as I was hoping to because I found out that with this month off, I was able to take care of much more important things. Uh, one of those things being my impending wedding. Uh, impending, it's a long impending since it's not until next June. Uh, but we were able to sit down and me and the significant other, the more significant other, were able to sit down after work and discuss things over dinner and you know, start checking things off the list. So we have most of everything kind of figured out to where I'm now able to focus on like my, my suits, my groomsmen suits and my bachelor party and all those good things that, uh, you know, in, 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 in other circumstances, I might have to crunch that all out later on down the line, but, uh, no, not now. No, I'm taking care of it now. And, uh, pretty much, uh, that's what I've been doing that and, and working and, prepping for our October series of episodes, which I'm super excited about. Do you want to share with our favorite listener what uh, what they might have in store? Well, we, as you may or may not know, our, all of our listener, we have themed the last few years' worth of Halloween material. And so we've done things like Friday the 13th series, we've done the Halloween series, we've done the Nightmare on Elm Street series, and so we were kind of looking into another series that we could do. And I was thinking, well, you know what would be fun and crazy would be the Howling series, because it kind of reignited the werewolf craze back in the late 70s and early 80s. Turns out there's like eight of those movies. I thought there were only five, and that should tell you why I only thought there were five when there were eight, because most people quit watching these movies, because it turns out that they're terrible. And Tim, in his infinite wisdom, picked up on this very quickly and was like, Matt, 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 Matt. And I'm like, I'm like, no, 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 these are, these are really good. We gotta do these. He's like, Matt, 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 Matt. And I'm like, what? He's like, they fucking suck, but let's do werewolf movies. And I said, Tim, god damn it, you're right. You son of a bitch. And so we're doing werewolf movies this month. We are, yes. Especially <laughs> uh, this week, we're covering the first half of the classic universal horror, uh, universal horror, the classic universal monster werewolf movies. Uh, next week, we'll be doing the Stars Born trilogy of yeah, we, we copycats. We are kind of taking a little break on that just because of the nature of the film coming out. Exactly. But primarily... Our focus for Halloween for, for October will be werewolf movies. And then, of course, we'll have our spectacular Halloween horror cast, as it were. But Or Hollywood horror cast. I, I mean, Hollywood I can never remember cast. what there it's called. Is that what it is? Hang, Hang on. on. I'm just going to let, let me scroll ahead here. Do, do, do. Halloween horror cast six. Coming up. It's coming at you. <laughs> we, can, we can write an Uncle John book about that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'd rather... What's more gross? Taking a dump with your phone or taking a dump with a paper book? Honestly, my guess is probably the taking a dump with your phone. Because you're doing all sorts of wonderful things with your hands prior to touching that phone while you're on the toilet. Now, let's just presume for a second that you 
haven't actually done anything in the neighborhood of needing to wipe your wash your hands for whatever reason while you're doing anything, which is good because most people should know how to properly wipe and groom themselves while on the toilet without needing to wash their hands in the process. But think about the people who don't and think about what they touched and where they were before you got into that stall and sat down and then you touched your phone. And then where's that phone going? Up against your face. And now I realize why people text all the time. <laughs> because they don't, want the, they don't want their shit phone on the face. And then you, of course, being a proper human being, will then go after you're done, after you've done your business and wash your hands, but you can't exactly just wash your phone. And that is why I would think that it's probably grosser to use your phone than it would be to just reach for a book. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, because you're not generally rubbing the book on your face at any point. And I don't know. Now I don't think I'm ever going to touch anybody else's phone, though. And to all of our listeners out there listening to us live, if you wish to weigh in on this, call us at 1-800-555-JOHN-TALK. <laughs> we are your hosts, Matt and Tim, from Podcast Poo. I don't know. Wow, uh, I'm back, and we're already wasting time talking about. We are. Fecal, We've wasted time. Yeah, we wait. We waste a lot of. But that's okay. We haven't been able to do this for a month. This is true. This you is know, true. People will cut us some slack, but you can still reach out to us at the show. Uh, at I'm sorry, at the SLS Cast, of course, on Twitter. But you know, sending us an email to let us know how you feel about Poo Talk, the show at SLSCast.com. <laughs> It'll be fun. That's our that's fun. our Twitter handle, Poo Talk at <laughs> SLS guy. Or that's our email address. There uh, we go. Oh man. Well, you know, okay, so I did promise the people last week that we would do a new segment. And Tim, I think we should I think we should get to that. What do you say? Sounds great. All right, man. Here we go. It's the news. <laughs> And by God, I've got news, but fuck this shit. I've gone first for news for a long time, and I feel that it's the mantle should be passed to Tim for this episode. And sir, please, please go first. What do you got for us tonight? <laughs> All right, first up, via IndieWire.com, the indie film preservation crisis we are losing the films that defined the 80s and 90s. This here is written by Chris O'Fault, and it was published on September 25th of this year at 12.45 p.m. to be exact. Uh, and it says this, When curating the recent retrospective NY Indie Guy Ira Dutchman and the Rise of Independent Film, a Columbia University exhibit honoring the 40-year career of a leading American independent film producer, marketer, and distributor, programmers Rob King and Jack Lechner made an upsetting discovery. Many of the films they picked to screen were unavailable in any form. This sent Dutchman into the detective mode, or just into detective mode, to discover what happened to many of the films he helped introduce to the world. 
He walked away from his initial examination, shocked by the situation, and with a grim assessment. We are in danger of losing many of the films that defined recent movements in American independent film. During the height of the independent boom back in the 80s and into the 90s, it was always considered the holy grail for independent filmmakers that to be truly independent, they would eventually get back the rights or control the rights or control their copyrights. That is what Dutchman said in an interview. He also said, quote, I should say quote this time, all that type of stuff was bandied about as being really important. Here we are 20 years later and we've got this crisis developing where if somebody doesn't do something about it, they may end up being lost, end quote. Dutchman holds up Nancy Savoka's 1993 film Household Saints as a poster child for the problem. When he was at Fine Line Features, Dutchman put together the film's financing and distribution partners. One by one, he went to all the companies that inherited various rights. Warner Brothers now controls the Fine Line Library. Sony now controls what was the RCA Columbia Library. And the TV company Jones Entertainment is now defunct. Each company said its rights had expired. Quote, We have no idea who controls the rights at this point. We're still trying to find out. End quote, said Dutchman. Quote, and worse yet, the film was never released on DVD. It was never released on any streaming format. The only copy of it we have been able to find is a 35mm print at the USC, uh, excuse me, at the UCLA Film Archive, but it has a damaged reel. And I have a VHS cassette of it, and that is it. End quote. Part of, the pro, uh, part of the problem is storage and proper care of the materials costs money. And for the independent filmmakers who are no longer making income on these movies, Netflix and the other profitable streamers aren't interested, according to Dutchman. So the cost of preservation is a hardship. Yet even when a film is well-preserved, restorations can still be expensive. For example, Indie Collect, a nonprofit attempting to tackle the indie preservation crisis, recently restored the 1979 documentary The War at Home, for which directors Glenn Silber and Barry Brown remain the rights holders. Years ago, they made sure to properly archive all their original film and sound elements at the Wisconsin—excuse uh, me—at the Wisconsin Historical Society. Indie Collect borrowed the elements from WHS and scanned the original negative using its in-house Kineta archival scanner at 5K to produce a true 4K DCP. Quote, as is common with vintage film, the negative showed some warping and shrinkage, but was in quite good sharp, uh, but was in quite good shape overall, end quote, said Sandra Schulberg president of Indie Collect, she sent it to a color lab in Rockville where the audio was restored. Quote, they created 24 frames per second wave files for us in our editorial team who uses those files to sync sound to raw film scans. Then color correction and restoration could begin, she said. 
end all quotes there. The article does go on for a bit more. They talk about the time that it takes to go through and restore these films and the cost that it takes uh, to restore these films. Uh, if I highly recommend all of you out there to check this article out. It's definitely filmed, uh, excuse me, it's definitely filmed with quite a, a lot of very interesting information uh, that I think it's in, imperative for all, a lot of us film goers or cinephiles to uh, to take note of. Again, that was via IndieWire.com, the indie film preservation crisis. We are losing the films that defined the 80s and 90s, written by Chris O'Fault. Matt, I'm sure it'd be sad for you if you lost some of the maybe lesser known films from the 80s or 90s. I mean, there's got to be movies out there that you were a fan of at some point that maybe a lot of, like maybe it didn't have mass success, you know? Honestly, I am in a really weird position when it comes to that kind of material because I actually I read that article as well, so I'm really glad that you found that that you decided to bring that article to to the show. The problem for me is that really and truly I I am not a big cinephile in terms of indie films from the 80s into the early 90s. It wasn't until the late 90s that I really started getting into indie movies, and it was because of the advent of IFC, which is in no way, shape, or form what it is today. That is not what IFC was back in uh, 96, 97. And so I didn't really get that exposure. So while I do agree that it is a problem, and it is something that should be looked into, I also think that it's a great cautionary tale because there, at this point, I really don't see a way to preserve a lot of these things because I, I'm sure that there are going to be just like the guys going into this article. Oh, well, we're going to do this retrospective on this really cool guy. And then it's like, hey, well, let's see if we can look into more of his filmography. And then it's just like in this article. Well, shit, we can't find anything. And I think it's going to turn into another black and white slash silent film era where we've lost something in the neighborhood of like 94, 95% of all the movies from that era gone. And not just because of deterioration. A lot of that stuff went up in flames and various fires back in the 20s and 30s. So I think it's going to be something like that, but I really do think that it will allow people to be smarter about how they store the digital film that they're making now, digital film, the digital recordings they're making now, because they do discuss that in the article as well. But I think that it will help make what we do find become that much more precious. Also, I think it will help because in the event that we do start actually losing these prints, losing some of the masters and not having enough fans out there who happen to have a VHS tape lying around, I think it will honestly help in other ways because it will provide avenues for these films to be remade that might have otherwise gone untaken. I think it's, I, th I think this is actually a better lens to look at it than, oh dear God, we're going to lose everything. Because yes, that's not to say that that won't be a shame, but I do think that it is not as dire as it could be. 
I think this could open up ways for us to get lots of better movies so that we don't have to worry about tentpole action. And of course, when the coming movie apocalypse happens, cinema apocalypse, I need to come up with a good phrase for that. Because eventually, movie watching as we know it is going to come crashing and burning. We just need to be prepared because when that happens, all this stuff that's been indie stuff, all this stuff, all these scripts that were lost, now get a new chance at being made. And it can help reestablish cinema in a much better light. I guess I'm just trying to be a glass half full guy because, damn it, Tim, I'm glad to be talking to somebody. Oh, I thought you definitely want to carry on with your own show for a while i, I thought i was going to take for the net like the next uh two months off oh jesus i don't think I can this was that. just a fluke <laughs> please don't do that to me it turns out i don't know how to talk to myself like i thought i would but matt i was never really here ah see Ooh. you know i'm doing that dead thing a good thing this is already digital and stored on multiple hard drives or maybe not. Who knows? Anyway, do you agree with my take on this? This was this was your article, after all. Didn't mean to hijack it. Yeah, I mean, granted, I watch a lot of movies. Um, I've been slowing down quite a bit this year because I realized I think it's just bad for people to watch five fucking movies a week. Every single week. And I've been seeing a lot of that bullshit on Twitter where people are talking about, you know, oh, I can't go a week without watching at least five movies. And every once in a while, I'll watch five movies a week if it's for the show or if there's like a lot of stuff I'm wanting to watch or if I'm sick. But I, I think it's important to come across things randomly and to discover things and maybe uh, and to let it incubate in your mind without diving into some other, you know, uh, a movie cinema treasure, you know, and, um, I, I, and because I'm taking that course now with how I watch movies, I guarantee you there are going to be so many more flicks from the sixties in the seventies that I just haven't had time to get around to. And when I am either told to watch it or once I stumble across it, I hope I would be able to, to, to you know, to, to view it. And I'm talking about especially um, a lot of indie foreign films that, uh, and I've been watching a number of those recently that have just been kind of blowing my mind because I would never think about watching some of these particular flicks. Um, and I'm not talking about like your, your Godard, your, you know, Jules and Jim or, or your Kurosawa flicks. I'm talking about more obscure stuff. Um, it, it would be a shame if I look forward to watching something and it turns out there's not a copy out there. But I think it is important for people to realize this now and start maybe paying attention to this type of thing. So we maybe have more Christopher Nolans out there, more Martin Scorsese's that will take it upon themselves to start pre you know preserving films or keeping an eye out on copies of these films so that maybe somebody can take them and preserve them or do something to do something with it um so i, I mean as much as i would hate to see a film lost i mean it's already lost there's nothing we can really do about it there's still so many other great films out there that have either been preserved or in the process of being preserved so it's a live and learn situation. Right on, man. I'm glad. 
to I'm just I'm just glad. All right. Well, I'm going <laughs> to jump in here right quick with uh, my longer of two pieces here from Bloomberg.com by way of Lucas Shaw. Netflix is planning a choose-your-own-adventure Black Mirror. That's right, folks. Netflix, Inc. is about to let you decide how your favorite show will end. The streaming service is developing a slate of specials that will let viewers choose the next storyline in a TV episode or movie, according to people familiar with the matter. The company expects to release the first of these projects before the end of this year, said the people who ask not to be identified because the plans are still private. Viewers will get to choose their own storylines in one episode of the upcoming season of Black Mirror, the Emmy-winning science fiction anthology series. The show is famous for exploring the social implications of technology, including an episode where humans jockey to receive higher ratings from their peers. The fifth season of the show is expected to be released in December. The foray into choose-your-own-adventure programming represents a big bet on, on a nascent form of entertainment known as interactive TV. As Netflix expands around the world, it's looking for new ways to lure customers. By blending elements of video games with traditional television, the company could create a formula that can be applied to any number of series. Netflix has already released a handful of episodes of Choose Your Own Adventure animated programs designed for kids. Within the first couple minutes of Puss in Book, the viewer must choose whether the pugilistic feline fights a god or a tree. After watching one version, the viewer, the viewer can go back and choose the alternate scenario. This new type of narrative can complicate the production and deal-making. While a traditional movie has a 100-page script, a two-hour experience needs to have a longer script and production to account for all the different scenarios. Writers and producers are still determining how the extra demands affect their pay, among other matters. The stories that branch off from the main narrative of Black Mirror will be more complex than the options in the kids' programming, though it remains to be seen just how complicated the show will be. Consumer experience is paramount at Netflix, which employs executives who test everything from the quality of mobile networks in Mumbai to Brazilians' preferences for subtitles versus dubbing. Producers of interactive TV are hoping Netflix's growing investment is a sign that their time in the spotlight is approaching. HBO, one of Netflix's fiercest rivals, released its first interactive TV show earlier this year. Directed by Steven Soderbergh, the longer version of Mosaic was available in a separate app. I'm going to end that article there. That was actually a little less than 50% of that article, and I bounced around and made it all small so we could talk about it this way. Tim! Thoughts on this idea. So it's definitely coming to Black Mirror, but they are already looking into trying to work this into films. Do you think this is even remotely a good idea, number one? And number two, regardless of whether or not you think it's a good idea, do you think it can work in a movie format? Because I think in a TV format, like something like Black Mirror, or in some form or fashion, like they're doing with Puss in Book, I think you can make it work because clearly you can just go back and rewatch it and have fun doing something different. But in a movie, it's such a, it's such a heavier time investment. And I don't know what it would do other than give more license to fan edits because then someone could like edit it the way they would want the movie to go and then put that online or something. I don't see this working in the movie realm at all. But do you think it's a good idea, period? And if so, or regardless, where do you land on the movie side of this? Well, did the article say how successful the Soderbergh TV show was? It did not. Now, I remember that was a big deal 
we talked about a little bit on the show because they were going to release the choose your own thing. And then it was going to be re-edited, I think to be a movie to be, if I remember correctly, or if it was going to be re-edited, just be a straight series. Um, but I, I mean, I think with children's programming, uh, with the puss in book thing, that's, I think pretty interesting growing up as a kid, I read goosebumps and I read the choose your own adventure goosebumps and I fucking loved those. Mm -hmm. So that I, I think when it comes to maybe the horror genre or the mystery genre, um, I, I think that is definitely something that could be pretty interesting. Um, as for the movie format, you couldn't, you can't do this at a movie theater. Like it would have to be home entertainment. It would, it would have to be VOD or on a, on a Blu-ray or disc or something you would have to access at home. I don't even see this happening on a Blu-ray disc. This is probably something you're going to have to download or partake in within an app or something. Probably. I, I will say this though, uh, back in like 94. Five uh, question heavy duty question mark. Sony, if I remember, because this is all from memory. Sony, I want to say, piloted a choose your own adventure movie, and I believe it had Christopher Lloyd in it. I don't remember much about. It. I can't remember if it was more. I think it was kind of like a an action comedy, and. The pilot part of it was because the theater itself actually had like little button selectors or something like little remotes on the armrest. And depending on the preponderance of the vote in the theater would then move to the next segment of the movie. And that choice would be what uh, whoever, you know, whatever choice garnered the most votes would be what they would do. And I thought it was such a neat idea because where you did the Goosebumps stuff, I did the original like 1980s choose your own adventure books, little white books with the red label across the top, choose your own adventure. And I loved those books. I loved them, loved them, loved them. And so I was really interested in this idea. But of course, I did not ever get to live the dream because as it was a pilot program, None of the theaters, even in Seattle, I, I thought, man, you're already on the West Coast. None of the theaters in Seattle got this thing. And I I could see it theoretically working in that regard. Because if you download it on an app, and then based on the results of the app vote, you could then... Do, because it's digital projection, so... I mean, you could do it, I guess. I don't know. I'd just be worried about being in a theater. Then you have people like reacting to it in the theater differently, pissed off that their choice didn't get picked. And <laughs> I don't know. It's I, I think I think that's perfectly fine for the home entertainment, the home viewing experience. But I don't know if it was like a specialty thing, like a 40x, you know, like how the 40x thing is super specialty. AMC dine-in theaters or specialty? Sure, why not? But I don't want that to become like, sorry, we're going to have to uh, get rid of half of these movie showtimes because we need to make some time available for these specialty choose-your-own-adventure showtime, you know. 
all that crap. <laughs> right. No, I hear you. I hear you. Cool. All right. Well, again, if you're interested, please read the whole article at uh, Bloomberg.com by way of Lucas Shaw. Netflix is planning a choose-your-own-adventure Black Mirror. And then finally from me, really, really fast, from HollywoodReporter.com by way of Mia Galupo, George Carlin biopic in the works from Moneyball Writer. That's right, folks. Gail Berman's Jackal Groove is developing a biographical project about the late legendary comedian George Carlin, which will be written by Stan Chervin, the Oscar-nominated screenwriter behind Brad Pitt's Moneyball. Carlin's prolific career spanned over five decades, more than 130 Tonight Show appearances, 14 HBO specials, and 23 solo albums that earned him five Grammy Awards. His infamous 1972 Seven Words You Can't Say on Television put him at the center of a U.S. Supreme Court case, FCC versus Pacifica Foundation, that would outline the extent to which the government could regulate speech on broadcast and radio. Carlin passed away at the age of 71 in 2008, the same year he was awarded the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. Shervin and Berman will produce, along with Jackal Group's Joe Early, Bruce Kaufman under his new banner, Wood Hollow Pictures, and Jerry Hamza, the comedian's former manager and the executor of the George Carlin estate. It is currently unclear what format the project will take, but the long-form biopic will either have a theatrical streaming or television release. And, I don't know, Tim, is that interest you at all yeah i mean it interests me as much as the new elton john kind of sort of fantasy biopic uh, yeah. you know i think it would be fun if they i i think if i i think it would be good depending and, and i don't know the involvement of him personally but i think it would be kind of fun in a lenny bruce-esque kind of a way if they kind of did the up-and-coming portion of his career into the FCC case and then with the result of the FCC case then oh you know, George Carlin not Elton John and card okay. yeah I, I'm with you now yeah <laughs> sorry yeah I think it would be kind of interesting to have that aspect and then once the case is over a little title card George Carlin went on to have 130 appearances, blah, 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 and did, you know, died in 2008. That might be interesting, but just an entire life of George Carlin, um, I, I don't know. It's not that I don't think he was uninteresting, but I, I'm not, I'm not sure where you would go. But I, yeah, I'm definitely weirded out by the Taron Edgerton thing. Am I saying his name right? I don't know. At any rate, yeah, I saw I saw the the teaser trailer yesterday for this Elton John. Yeah, it's going to be like across movie. the universe, very fanciful. But I'm not going to go through in depth my last piece of news. But I'm just going to mention the title of it and maybe just read a brief bit of the first paragraph since we're running way over right now. Uh, via motherboard.vice.com, that is motherboard via di- uh, via dice, Jesus Christ, motherboard.vice.com, there we go. The rise of Netflix competitors has pushed consumers back toward piracy. This here is written by Carl Bode, or Bode, and it was published on October 2nd of this year. Uh, in the first couple paragraphs say this, a new study shows that after years of declines, BitTorrent usage and piracy is on the rise again. The culprit, an increase 
in exclusivity deals that force subscribers to hunt and peck among a myriad of streaming services to actually find the content they're looking for. Sandvine's new Global Internet Phenomena report offers some interesting insights into user video habits in the internet, such as the fact that more than 50% of internet traffic is now encrypted, Video Now accounts for 58% of all global traffic, and Netflix alone now comprises 15% of all internet downstream data consumed. If you want to read the rest of it, I do highly, highly recommend it. It's pretty fascinating, I think. Uh, it's via motherboard.vice.com. The rise of Netflix competitors has pushed consumers back toward piracy. And that's my news. It's not surprising at all. We're getting to the point where you're once again trying to pay for 16 different things and... Each one is anywhere between 8 and $15 a month, depending on what it is that you're looking at. And it's not going to take very long before you sit there and go, well, Jesus Christ, now I'm spending $100 a month again. It's And what's going to happen, I guarantee you, I guarantee you within 10 years, set a remind me, tell your Alexa to do whatever it is that you need to do to get this on your calendar. Within 10 years, there is going to be a service that bundles these things together just like cable. And they'll probably do something stupid like, hey, we're going to sign you up for multiple free, for the free trials, right? We'll, we'll do the, we'll do the creation of your fake credit card and your fake email address and then send you all the passcodes and everything that you need to go log in. And then you can have this a uh, free month trial and try all these different things out and get your own package put together. And we'll just charge you like $10 a month. Think of the savings because you're getting all these free trials and it's only $10 a month. And I, I, I promise you within 10 years, you're going to see this and it's going to be cable all over again. And yet you'll still get offers for a free fucking phone line. <laughs> Amen. All right. Well, as promised, as promised in episode 298, we did do some news because naturally this is something that Tim hasn't had an opportunity to do for like a month and he has things he wants to say too. But we are going to have a very, very fun copycat throwdown for our bonus segment next week for episode 300, guys. 5.76 years nonstop weekly content. All new, all the time. And our special bonus segment for the Copycat Throwdown is going to be basically all of the Star is Borns that there ever have been and possibly ever will be. We're going to do the new one that just came out, uh, Star is Born 2018. Well, I guess it comes out this week. Star is Born 2018 versus A Star is Born 1976 versus A Star is Born 1954. And while we're saying we're not going to do it, I put it on there anyway just because, who knows, a hair might get up one of our asses and we end up watching it anyway. A Star is Born 1937. Don't count on that last one, but who knows, it might happen. But yeah, so we're basically throwing in all the A Star is Borns and we're going to see whether or not Lady Gaga, Judy Garland, or Chris Christopherson becomes the best star. <sighs> yeah. But until then, how about we do some news, Tim? What do you say? You mean some news? You mean some movies? God damn it. I did that last week, too. 
Slow clap. Yes. It's because I'm not here, Matthew. I'm dead. I'm not I'm not here. <laughs> the floating disembodied Tim. Yes. Let's do movies. Here we go, folks. It's the movie. <laughs> First up here, we got... Well, actually, okay, I, I guess we're doing the theatrical release first. But we do have Hellfest, and then we're doing all of our werewolf movies. We have Werewolf of London, The Wolfman, 1941 version, Frankenstein meets The Wolfman and The House of Frankenstein. Um, would you like to start with the theatrical release, Tim, or do you want to end on the theatrical release? Oh, no, let's start off with the theatrical release. All right, folks, and we are going to jump in with Hellfest. That time of year, when the days get shorter and kids go hunting for a good scare. It's Halloween. I've got us VIP passes to Hellfest. What is that? Hellfest. Where these friends were just looking for a night of frightful fun. Go! We came here to be terrified. <laughs> but among the masks and make-believe, where everyone trusts it's all part of the show... I'm going to need her back, dude. Someone is not following the script. Do you think you're scaring me? No. Move. And his idea of fun... Help me! He's following me! can just do it. ...is murder. It's insane, right? Yeah. Really? Someone without a face. Someone without mercy. Take your job way too seriously. Someone you cannot stop. The guy that I was telling you about before, he was in there banging against the plexiglass. Someone who just wants to scare you to death. Two of our friends are missing. No, two of your friends are somewhere in the park drunk. September 28th. Is it the park where the monsters are fake, but the terror is real? Hellfest. Rated R. This carnival is not for children. All right. 2018 American slasher film directed by Gregory Plotkin and written by Seth M. Sherwood, Blair Butler, and Akela Cooper from a story by William Pennock, Christopher Say, and Stephen Susco. Film stars Amy Forsyth, Bex, Taylor Klaus, Rain Edwards, and Tony Todd and follows a group of teens who are stalked by a serial killer while visiting a traveling Halloween carnival. Yeah. All right, so this is a really interesting idea. We have a guy who goes around killing people inside of Halloween haunted theme parks or Halloween haunted houses and what have you. And he is simply known as The Other. And as a fun little factoid, you uh, you never get to see his face, which is not necessarily a spoiler in and of itself, because I think, obviously, the, the hope will be that they can turn this into some kind of a franchise. But even if they don't, I kind of like the ambiance of never actually seeing it. But not only that, he's not credited either. So we don't even know who the actor was, or actors, in the event that there were more than one. So you've got this guy running around, chasing people and killing them inside. We then jump to the present day, and we've got a group of kids who are going on this little misadventure together. One girl's coming back and visiting her friends because school has kind of taken over her life. And we've got the pushy little pixie girl. We've got the best friend who lives with the new roommate. And then we've got the original friend here 
who is played by Amy Forsyth, and her name is Natalie. And they're trying to hook her up with this guy that she kind of liked over the summer. And everybody's going to get together and go to Hellfest. And lo and behold, the other appears again. And interestingly enough, through kind of a weird accidental bypass, the other goes after this group. Shenanigans ensue, as I like to say. Now, what I like most about this movie is that it takes every trope you've ever seen in a film and pushes it almost to the point of ridiculousness without ever actually going over the line. Chief is the, uh, the, the, the character of Taylor, played by Bex Taylor Klaus. She is definitely pushy, very know-it-all-ish kind of in your face, but they never let her dominate the screen. They just kind of use her, they use her very, very cleverly as a plot device to just kind of push, be the impetus to just push things forward just a little bit. And it's great because just at the moment that you start getting annoyed with her, they pull her away. They cut to something else, they go back, and I'll use that as a dynamic between the two more main characters of Natalie and Brooke, Brooke played by Rain Edwards, and that it, it, they use that dynamic very, very well. When it comes, the other thing that I really liked about the fact, other than the fact that they don't really push the tropes beyond the point of ridiculous, they do take it to the point of ridiculousness, but they don't ever push it beyond that, which I think is smart because it allows it to be fun, stupid, typical slasher horror, but never to the point where you're just kind of like, ugh. Which is great, and I disagree with a lot of the critics on this, because the critics are definitely bashing this kind of style. But the other thing that I really, really liked about this movie, the cinematography. The cinematography in this film was very, very smart, because they set up scenarios that allow the audience to be a part of the slasher character, the other, without ever truly leaving the victim. So you get the setup, you you automatically know where the other is going to appear, where the bad guy is going to appear, and yet they still leave just enough room for you to be surprised or terrified or let that suspense build because here he is, oh, oh, not yet, but you know he's going to be right here. Nope, nope, not yet. Is he there? And then now. And so... It's a really good blend and balance. I thought that was very inventive. Also, the fun of the way that the kills were displayed, only one of them was, for me, over the top. And it's one of the earlier kills, so that was kind of fun to see. But at the same time, even even the ridiculousness of that was only played the one time as such. Everything else was pretty pretty well done overall it's fun it's inventive and yet at the same time it's not ridiculously overtly gory which i thought was also pretty cool i think this is a good movie i it's it's still it's still a teen slasher flick so don't go out thinking that this is going to be five star material or anything like that and there are still errors in the continuity and stuff that are pretty obvious as you're watching but it's still a fun and likable movie overall. I actually give this one a 3.5 out of 5, and I would recommend that you go see it. Tim, what do you got? I surprisingly thoroughly enjoyed this one as well. It's 
it's a fun flick and it's probably the closest feeling you'll get to uh, you know that, that you'll get to feeling like you're actually visiting a haunted attraction within a movie theater this year um it, it's fun it's entertaining at, at, you you kind of you get caught up in the in the vibe of the whole movie and and the excitement that these characters are experiencing and really the only complaints i have is that the first 5 10 minutes or so like with any slasher teen high school college movie you have to set up the girls and you have to have this like sexy like talk about ooh you have to look sexy for this guy so basically he can fuck you or you could fuck him and it's just all this stuff that just feels or sounded, or I guess it, it made me feel a little weird in the whole Me Too movement, I guess. And it, it it felt way dated. I never really cared for that shit anyway, because a lot of it was never, it, like the point of it wasn't to be sexy, but to sound like how people spoke. And college kids these days, more so than not, are smart. And you and don't necessarily talk like that and it and it would it would have made more sense if they kind of took a more mature approach to handling that kind of discussion um but other than that there were a handful of shot choices i didn't care for that i thought looked a little sloppy there were a few story elements that i didn't care for that felt like it could have been done better um but it's not really worth going into because overall the movie was enjoyable. I give it a 3.5 out of 5 as well. I mean, other than the upcoming Halloween movie and probably bad times at the El Royale, there's not going to be another good Halloween holiday movie for you to enjoy at the movie theater. So why not give this one a shot? Agreed. Quick question, though. One of the things that I liked about Hellfest was the idea that Hellfest is kind of, even sure. though it's traveling, as it were, it's still kind of like this Disneyland of Halloween-themed haunted houses. And now, I've never been to anything like that specifically, but back in the day when I was young and thin and good-looking and wanting to have those kinds of thrills and chills, I lived in the Dallas area. And we would go down to Waxahachie, and they had this big field. I mean, it literally, it really was. It was like an old cornfield that they would convert into a series of haunted houses. It was probably, I want to say it was four or five of them. And, and then of course they had a, like a big haunted corn maze and stuff. So I mean, it was, it took up, I would say at least four acres, four to five acres. And you could pay to go and hit each one or, or go and pay and get, hit all of them. Do they have, do they actually have anything like that? Like where you could really go and have a series of ever increasing haunted houses and, and this huge I have property. no clue, have like to be that? honest. I think it would be awesome. Cause I, I think the idea is great. Yeah. I think the idea is great. I would, I would do that now. I would go and grab the wife and drag her literally kicking and screaming because she hates all things horror. I mean, the closest thing is like at Astroworld, you know, they would have the Fright Fest. Here at Universal Studios, well, the mm -hmm. one here in L.A. and the one in uh, Florida, they have uh, Halloween Horror Nights or Hollywood. Yeah, Halloween Horror Nights where they basically have all these different mazes and different like sections of the park where it's done up spooky and it's more adult themed. Uh, 
Knott's Berry Farm has this also. They call it Knott's Scary Farm. So I think maybe, especially in theme parks and maybe festival grounds, you're seeing a lot of things kind of like this. And also, there's there's a rise in extreme horror. There is. I've, there's there's a, have you heard of this? McCamey Manor. No, no, that's not the one I'm thinking of. There's one that it, it like literally changes coasts. Like it's in New York one year, and then it's in like in L.A. another year, and they kind of bounce back and forth. And it is touted as like the scariest haunted house. And it's the whole they can touch you thing. There's most people don't make it all the way through. There's no prize if you make it through other than just bragging rights. But I mean, it's supposedly ridiculously intense and everything like that. Yeah. Um, There's a website dedicated to you would think I would have pulled that up knowing we were talking about that. But hey. Tim's the one that's prepared, not me. <laughs> yeah, I, but I, I, no, I, I definitely know what you're talking about. I, I mean, so I, I think a lot of that was some kind of inspiration for this movie. And I'm sure sooner rather than later, we're probably, if this movie makes a little bit more money, it's actually not doing all that great at the box office. But uh, I, I guarantee you at some point we're going to see more uh, m- more traveling like theme parks around Halloween time or fall time, kind of like. Hellfest because it's got to be relatively inexpensive for people to put these things on and a lot of people would go to it because it's it's exciting it's fun and you know it's kind of nice not having to go to uh go go to this one area like scream world or phobia where for each individual attraction you go to you have to pay to go through it and some are better than others so I don't know. It's pretty interesting. And and going to see Hellfest, it made me want to visit one of these theme parks. Same. So the movie has definitely has that going, uh, you know, going for it. Outstanding. All right. So uh, regarding our werewolf series uh, this evening, do we just want to do them in release order? order? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, then we're yeah. going to move right in here and start with Werewolf of London from 1935. <laughs> seize the only specimen of the Marifesa plant in England. That flower is the only known antidote for werewolfery. A very interesting folktale, but of no value to the police. I warn you, sir, unless you secure this plant, there'll be an epidemic that will turn London into a shambles. When my experiments are completed, I will show their results to the entire world, not before. Remember this, Dr. Glendon. The werewolf instinctively seeks to kill the thing it loves best. You brought this on me that night in Tibet. Sorry, I can't share this with you. horror film directed by Stuart Walker starring Henry Hall as the titular werewolf and produced by Universal Pictures. Now, 
It's note. It's interesting to note here that Jack Pierce does the makeup here and also does it for the Wolfman, the more iconic one that you're used to seeing. And this stage makeup is the basis for what we're going to see going forward with Lon Chaney, but it's a very, very lighter version of that. And so basically what we have here is Wilford Glennon. He is a renowned English botanist, and he is going to Tibet in search of this Marafaza plant. And it's very special, very elusive, hard to find. And while he's there, he's attacked and gets bitten and finds out that he is going to be a werewolf and he doesn't believe it. But then he also finds out from another professor that this Marifaza plant can actually make it so that you won't change. And it's not the traditional silver bullet and changing, you know, necessarily just because of the full moon kind of a thing. Though you are starting to kind of see this mythos vaguely get put together. But unfortunately for poor Wilfred, He's not able to get things to work out for him, and of course, shenanigans ensue. What will become of him and his and his family and his his love and anything else? Well, tune in and find out, right? So, I gotta say, um, taking into account that these movies are eighty years old for the most part, seventy and eighty years old, this movie's not bad. It is. Your typical 30s melodrama, it's actually, in my opinion, it's really more melodrama than it is horror. I, I, I think that they tout the horror, especially during the time period, as something that that's the thrill, that's the real draw. But if you actually look at the agonizing that these characters go through, especially Henry Hull, who plays Dr. Glendon, and then, of course, later on with Lon Chaney, uh, as uh, Lon Chaney Jr. as Larry Talbot, you you see that it's that this is something that they're wrestling with and that is what is supposed to bring the drama and cause you to want to root for the characters it's not just as simple as rawr monster kill kind of a thing but it plays out that way mainly because it's 75 to 80 years old okay i can live with that aspect of it but it's the melodrama that counts. And in point of fact, I felt that it was acted pretty well. Cinematography's stock standard. I, I mean, it's it's definitely a 30s film. And if you're not into that as aesthetic, then you're probably not going to find much to like with this movie. But I think the makeup was pretty cool. And I think that the acting was good. It's not spectacular, but I do like the mythos that it sets up. And I like the characters overall. So I give this one a three out of five. I like this movie. What do you got there, Tim? So not only was Werewolf of London Universal's first attempt at making a mainstream werewolf movie, but it was also the first attempt in general to make a werewolf movie. This first attempt proved unsuccessful for Universal as it didn't garner an audience. This was probably because critics and audience thought that the film was too similar to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which did come out just a few years earlier in 1931. A number of technical aspects might have also added to its negative reception, the screenplay and the lack of special effects makeup, for example. The dialogue is clunky and comes across as sounding stereotypical British posh, 
The score is very standard and generic for its time. The werewolf makeup is especially minimal when comparing it to Lon Chaney Jr.'s werewolf makeup. If you're going to make a monster movie, you need to create a look that the audience will never forget. Coming after both the massively popular and iconic looks of Bela Lugosi's Dracula and Boris Karloff's Frankenstein, there's no arguing that Henry Hull's makeup was a letdown. But it should be noted that legendary makeup artist Jack Pierce, who created the looks of Frankenstein, the Mummy, and Lon Chaney Jr.'s Wolfman, created Henry Hull's werewolf look, so the lackluster design is a real head-scratcher. It is said that Jack Pierce's original design was the same he'd used for Lon Chaney Jr.'s, but was rejected by Pierce or the studio, who wanted more of a minimalist approach that was less obscuring to facial expressions. Or Henry Hole, who either didn't want to, quote, spend hours having makeup applied, end quote, or had issues with vanity and wanted the audience to be able to see his face. More than likely, it was Hull who, quote, argued that according to the script, the werewolf had to be instantly recognizable to the other characters as Dr. Glendon, end quote. With all these technical aspects being what they were and are, there was nothing that outright made Werewolf from London stand out from all the other suspense thriller horrors of the time. At 75 minutes, the flick is an intriguing watch. And if anything, noticing all the tweaks the studio would later make to their Wolfman franchise provides a little insight to what audiences were clamoring for at that time. What this film does get right is Henry Hull's sense of urgency in finding a cure. The danger that his werewolf creature imposes on the woman that he loves and the overall suspense that naturally comes with it. So I, too, give Werewolf from London 3 out of 5. All right, well then, we are going to move directly into 1941's The Wolfman. Jenny Williams was killed? Yes. Find something? Animal tracks. Whoever is beaten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, don't hand me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf beat you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. You wouldn't want to run away with a murderer, would you? Oh, Larry, you're not. You know you're not. I killed Bela. I killed Richardson. If I stay here any longer, you can't tell who'll be next. All right, yeah, American Horror Film, written by Kurt C. Automack, and produced and directed by George Wagner. Film features, of course, Lon Chaney Jr. in the title role. Also features Claude Rains, Warren William, Ralph Bellamy, Patrick Knowles, and Bella Lugosi, with Elvin Anchors and Maria Osipinskaya in supporting roles. Yes! Nailed that fucking name! <laughs> 
All right. What we have here is sometime in the early 20th century, right? Uh, Larry Talbot returns to his ancestral home in Wales to reconcile with his estranged father. And he kind of hits it up with this local girl and things are pretty cool. You know, he's like, hey, I think life might actually start to be pretty good. And he ends up getting this walking stick. It's got a wolf's head on it. Um, What kind of can would you like? There's one. Make a good putter. (laughs) Yes, it would. That's funny. Another dog. <laughs> no, that's a wolf. A wolf? Mm-hmm. A wolf and a star. What does that mean? I thought you said you were psychic. Oh, I am. But this is only wood and silver, and it hasn't blue eyes. Well, uh, that stick is priced at three pounds. Three pounds? Fifteen dollars for an old stick? Well, that's a very rare piece. It shows the wolf in the pentagram, the sign of the werewolf. Werewolf? What's that? Well, that's a human being who at certain times of the year changes into a wolf. You mean runs around on all fours and bites and snaps and bays at the moon? Oh, even worse than that sometimes. What big eyes you have, Grandma. And he's told that it is representative of a werewolf. And there is this wonderful little chant that they say poem whatever you want to say even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may he become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright that's repeated a lot and believe it or not fun little trivia fact people actually thought that this was real european lore as it came and pertained to werewolves turns out nope completely made up for this movie At any rate, Larry finds himself also bitten by a wolf that turns out, oh, nope, it was actually a werewolf, and now you're going to be a werewolf too. You think I don't know the difference between a wolf and a man? Bela became a wolf, and you killed him. A werewolf can be killed only with a silver bullet or a silver knife or a stick with a silver handle. You're insane. I tell you I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. Take this charm, the pentagram, the sign of the wolf. It can break the evil spell. Evil spell, pentagram, wolfbane. Oh, I'm sick of the whole thing. I'm going to get out of here. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, quit handing me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf bit you, didn't he? Once again... We now have the concept of this inner turmoil where we have this guy who's just a nice average dude who ends up turning into this evil thing who desires to kill what it loves most. And he's wrestling with this whole thing of, is this really me? Am I really this monster? And maybe I am, but maybe I'm not. And of course shenanigans ensue what ends up becoming and now we get the full the full wolfman makeup you can't run away that's it that's what she said who the gypsy woman gypsy woman now we're getting down to it she's been filling your mind with this gibberish this talk of werewolves and pentagrams you're not a child laddie You're a grown man, and you believe in the superstitions of a gypsy woman. No, but the scar, the footprints in my room. Look, Father, 
I was caught in a trap tonight. I don't know how I got there. The old gypsy woman helped me get away. And now they're all out hunting for me. Listen to me. You're Lawrence Talbot. This is Talbot Castle. You believe those men can come in here and take you out? No. I'll go out to them. I can't help myself. Then I'll see to it that you can't go out to them. This one, not going to lie, is my favorite of all of them. And I like this one because for me, again, it's the melodrama that's the big play. Now, they've actually upped the ante a little bit. The production values are much are much more sound in this particular film. As Tim noted, I think they learned from the mistakes in the 35 film. They really got the makeup right. They definitely focused on, again, better production values and whatnot. But I think they crafted a better story that really kind of puts this dynamic twist on what happens to an average guy when he turns into a killer. Because let's face it, we can all pretend that we would never do this thing. or But you know what? It's fantastical. We don't know what we would do in this scenario. And we don't know how we would feel or we, re- or we would react. And that, again, I really think is the key. And I think they did a much better job of it in this one. And it, of course, helps that we have really good actors and actresses like uh, Claude Rains. Really good. And even a... Even a brief, a brief appearance by Bela Lugosi, more or less. So, cool. I'm I'm down with this version. However, it's still not, like, really, really super awesome. I would say that for its time and for what it's doing, it's aged appropriately, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's aged really well. I, I, I'm not going to say it aged poorly, but it's definitely maintained its status as a solid entry, and I think is definitely the best acted of all the films we're going to be talking about tonight. So I give this one a 3.25 out of 5, and I believe that if you were going to watch any of these, this would be the one that you should watch the most. Wolfman, 3.25 out of 5. Tim, what do you got, sir? A 3.25, huh? Wow. I certainly thought it would have been more than that. Nah, That's crazy. Nah. I mean, again, it's 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 mainly because despite it being so well acted, and they again moved it just even considering. I mean, we're getting into the forties. There's a there's a lot of <laughs> really good movies coming out at this time, and a lot of sure. the, and a lot of the more action adventure styles, a lot of things that are thrilling. We're getting a lot of really good. We're starting to get we're starting to get into the World War II picks and stuff like that. And so when you think about this movie on its own, you might be more inclined to give it a higher rating. But I think about all the other really great movies that come from this time, and. In in its genre, in its genre, it's good. I I suppose if I was gonna you know keep it in the horror film genre, I could I could justify giving it a higher rating, like a, maybe even a three point seven five. But against the backdrop of the other films as a whole coming out of this era, it doesn't hold up as well, and that's why I'm like I'm like you know it it ages appropriately, so it's not. It's not aging badly, but it's not aging as well as I think other films from the time period have. And that's kind of what holds it back. But I still maintain that this is the best of all the movies we're going to be, of all the werewolf movies that we're going to be talking tonight. So 
That is where my 3.25 comes from. For the type of film that many critics at the time would go out of their way to harshly criticize, (laughs) which were mainly horror films. I mean, critics at that time hated horror films. Uh, Universal was actually able to put together an impressive cast of accomplished actors. For instance, Claude Rains, whose career launched eight years before, after the release of The Invisible Man in 1933, he here plays Sir John Talbot, the stern but loving father of Lon Chaney Jr.'s Larry Talbot. Lon Chaney Jr., who, before the release of The Wolfman, was still living in the shadow of his father, Lon Chaney Sr., was a hardworking supporting actor who, during the six years before The Wolfman, appeared in a number of westerns and didn't receive any significant acclaim until his performance as Linny in the 1939 Hal Roach production of Of Mice and Men. He played the lead in a 1941 horror flick called Man-Made Monster for Universal, which successfully locked him into a long-term contract with the studio. After a handful of other supporting roles, he was finally given the role of Larry Talbot in The Wolfman, which would both make him into a massive celebrity and then typecast him as a horror actor for the rest of his career. Why this movie worked and not Werewolf of London, I think, has to do with the characters and how they challenge the audience, especially Larry Talbot. Most of the classic universal monsters are sympathetic characters who were thrust into these situations unwillingly. Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance was a critical driving force behind the film's success. He managed to create a dynamic character in Larry Talbot by making him at first a well-mannered and endearing womanizer and then a tragic character once realizing that he has absolutely no control of the Wolfman once the transformation is made. Lon Chaney Jr. might have also been able to incorporate some personal experience into his performance. In the film, Larry Talbot returns from an 18-year absence in America to his father's Sir John Talbot's estate in Wales upon hearing of his older brother's death. The audience learns the reason for Larry's long absence was due to the neglectful relationship he had with his own father. Moments after Larry's return, his father apologizes, and all has been easily forgiven. In Lon Chaney's personal life, his own father was very neglectful and unapologetically frowned upon his son's aspirations to be an entertainer. In fact, Lon Chaney Sr. was so adamant about Junior starting a business instead of acting that he threatened to write him out of his estate. Very much like Larry Talbot, it took a death for Lon Chaney Jr. to obtain what was rightfully his. The film is layered in its screenplay and technical attributes, making it all the more appealing. Because The Wolfman wasn't based on previously published material, screenwriter Kurt Siodemek did a lot of research into European folklore before writing the script, adding modern psychology to the horror formula. He also created much of his own folklore, 
which blends seamlessly with the real folklore and has been used as the basis for so many other werewolf movies that it's difficult to spot where the authentic folklore actually begins and ends. The imagery of cinematographer Joseph Valentin is perfectly atmospheric and visually pleasing. His framing of certain shots is incredibly interesting to look at because they are framed so well for a horror film. One particular bit of framing is one of the many interior shots of Sir John Talbot's estate, where characters are often standing while talking. Instead of the frame ending a few feet above their heads, the boundary extends further to reveal beautiful and intricately designed European-style ceilings. This would give the sets, the scenery even, more scope and personality. And it's because all of those diverse layers when it comes to its technical attributes and even its performances, especially Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance, I give this film a 4.5 out of 5. And of course, it should be obvious that the movie does have some faults. In fact, some things don't add up. For example, when Bella Lugosi is the wolfman himself, he is actually a four-legged wolf whereas Lon Chaney Jr. is never a four-legged wolf. The legend has it that is because of a previous draft of the movie where the where the character who would have been Lon Chaney Jr.'s character, it wasn't John Talbot, it was a different whole other different character, he wasn't actually transforming into a wolf. He was actually psychotic, and he only thought he was transforming into a wolf. He was actually hallucinating. Uh, and there were other moments of reused footage of the Wolfman kind of lurking around that just became a little too obvious when it seemed like it would have been more obvious for them to go out and just shoot, get some more shots of him lurking through this forest that they had a set for. But I give it a 4.5 out of 5. I do also highly recommend the Blu-ray for this film. It's a great purchase. There's some great special features, a wonderful commentary as well but 4.5 out of 5 for me all right well then we're gonna move right into 1943's frankenstein meets the wolfman looks rather like the bite of an animal aye that animal we remember it well hereabouts and it must have carried away the corpse of poor sir lawrence what animal why didn't you know sir there was a wild animal around here a few years ago it killed people bit through their throats Drained their blood. Did they kill it? Well, Sir John Talbot thought he did, sir. He attacked it in the dark one night, or so he thought. But it was his son he killed. Poor Mr. Larry. Where's Sir John Talbot now? Over there, sir. Died of grief shortly after. Well, let's get out of here. But he doesn't understand. There's a curse upon me. I change into a wolf. They told me you'd left England. I've looked all over Europe for you from town to town. Now that I've found you, you must help me. Come in. What do you want from me? Oliva. Here I still carry the sign of the pentagram. The mark of the werewolf. I kill people. When the moon is full, I turn into a wolf. It's not in my power to help you. You're the only one that understands. Nobody else in the world will believe me. 
you. You know. Your own son, Bela, was a werewolf. He attacked me. He changed me into a werewolf. He's the one that put this curse on me. Well, you watched over him until he was permitted to die. Well, now I want to die, too. Won't you show me the way? I can't. But I will guard you and take care of you as I took care of my own son. You are not leaving us. You are not going with him. He has the sign of the beast on him. He is dangerous only when the moon is full. I shall watch over him. He will murder you. No. I shall take him to a place I know. Where? I know a man who has the power to help you. Help me? Ooh. 1943, as we just said, or I just said, American horror film produced by Universal Studios. Again, starring Lon Chaney Jr. as Wolfman, Bela Lugosi as Frankenstein's monster this time. Yeah! Now, this is the first in a series of ensemble monster films, and it's actually a sequel, because this is kind of where they're merging the universes together. And this is also where you're starting to see the original studio cash grabs because look guys they don't just do it now they've been doing it the whole fucking time oh well the wolfman's kind of getting played out guys yes frankenstein's definitely getting played out can't really make any more money on dracula films that i'm aware of so what are we gonna do let's have a monster mash <coughs> pardon me so this movie is basically about four years or so after Wolfman and the Ghost of Frankenstein. So, again, we're merging two different franchises together at this point. And a couple of guys break into the crypt, and a la Friday the 13th Part 4, I think, where they reactivated Jason by stabbing him in the chest with the metal rod that gets struck by lightning and makes his heart go again this time they're stealing some things out of the coffin poor Lou Lon Chaney Jr. is in and and good old Larry gets struck with not a lightning bolt but a straight moonbeam shot and this brings him back so yeah this is how they're bringing him back he ends up tracking down the 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 monster in the in the frozen recesses of the ruins of the Frankenstein castle and resurrects him. And then it becomes this kind of thing where now there's doctors and, and, and they're coming back and they're like, oh no, we're going to fix the Frankenstein monster. And vill villagers are like, M motherfuckers, we just got rid of these assholes. What the fuck are y'all doing? No, 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 we got it under control. It'll be all right this time, we swear. Shenanigans ensue. People start dying and, well, we've got to have a monster fight. Now, I like the idea of what they're trying to do and for what it was for what it's worth it's at least kind of fun to watch how they put these two universes together it's stupid it's definitely not the best of master plans but it is at least within the realms of their own universes plausible we're also really now starting to nail down all the official mythoses of these various of this various 
franchises and this is where you're starting to see the advent of things like the silver bullet and stuff like that there are ways now we know to stop them and we're going to try and stop them they don't necessarily work the way that you would think they would work but now we're starting to see all these ideas come to the fore that get used and used ad nauseum today which make it so much harder for people to reinvent these franchises because people get so mad that they're redoing them but then they get mad when they don't redo them the way that people are familiar with I, I don't like this movie as much. It's definitely a decline in quality. You can see that this is becoming a cash grab. And it was the first of the cash grabs, so it's not quite as bad. But it's definitely going downhill at this point. Long story short, too late, I know. 2.75 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? Wow, I, di- I didn't realize I'd be enjoying these so much more than you. It's kind of it's funny. Maybe I'm more in the Halloween spirit with all my Halloween lights up. I, I I don't know. I don't know. Well, for you, just for the record, Halloween is your Christmas time. Like for me, sure. I'm all about the Christmas action. I like Halloween just fine. I got nothing against Halloween, but for me, my favorite holiday is perpetually Christmas. It is clear that your favorite holiday is Halloween. And but you don't enjoy every Lifetime movie. Every Christmas Lifetime movie. I, but these are not the equivalent of Christmas Lifetime movies. They're not even the equivalent of <laughs> Halloween Lifetime movies. I mean, <laughs> are there even Halloween Lifetime movies? Oh, I'm sure there I'm sure there've got to be. There you Stop, she, my babysitter's dead. She and was, trick or treat. She was a woman fresh out of an abusive relationship, finding herself and making it on her own. And then he came back. Suzanne Summers is the jilted lover. I don't know. I mean, she's old enough to be on Lifetime, right? Or is she she like old enough to be dead now? I don't know. Sorry, go ahead. You wanted to talk about Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and not you're enjoying these movies more than me. So you should do that now. I love you, Matthew. <laughs> By the time the film was released in 1943, there would have already been four Frankenstein films that were released by Universal. This would be a direct sequel to both 1941's The Wolfman and 1942's The Ghost of Frankenstein, which featured Lon Chaney Jr. as Frankenstein's monster and Bella Lugosi as Igor. The plan originally was to have Chaney play both the monster and the wolfman, but since Lugosi's Igor dies after implanting his own brain into the head of the monster, subsequently taking on his voice at the end of The Ghost of Frankenstein, it made sense to have Lugosi play the monster, which was a role that was originally intended for him to play in the original Frankenstein film. Much of Lugosi's performance was cut out during post-production, where a lot of story and character elements that the ghost of Frankenstein set up or introduced were removed completely. For example, the monster's ability to talk, because Igor put his brain into the monster, therefore the monster was able to speak, and somehow the monster then had uh, Igor's voice, which probably wouldn't work for Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, because the monster's voice would have been Lon Chaney's voice. So that was removed during post-production, and also for much of the monster's screen time, it would actually be played by a stuntman. 
The Ghost of Frankenstein was not a huge hit for Universal, as audiences were becoming less interested in the horror genre while World War II was happening, and people were now preferring more fluff pieces instead. This dip in interest would lead to the very first shared universe of Universal monsters, and these films would be called Monster Rally Films. Uh, I've were, I was reading some articles in uh, while preparing this, and I noticed that a lot of people were calling them Monster Mash films. No, technically, they're called Monster Rally films. This is more of a sequel to The Wolfman, as the story focuses mostly on Larry Talbot and his quest to find a way to successfully kill himself, and it takes 37 minutes for the monster to awaken from its icy tomb and join the movie. Overall, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman is an entertaining sequel, and I think it's a successful first monster rally outing. Was the fight between Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman as satisfying as the movie poster alludes to? Not at all. <laughs> In fact, it's a bit underwhelming. I've no been noticing a theme also with most of these movies. Uh, in fact, not necessarily Werewolf of London, that all these movies just end abruptly. Like, something very dramatic happens, like everybody dies, and then it's the credits right afterwards. Pretty much right when this brawl is going on, something happens, and that's just the end of the movie. So, the brawl never escalates to anything else, and as I'm sure one of us will mention this in the next review, that the brawl never carries into the next movie either, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, what pissed me off, I think, the most while watching this film, because I actually enjoyed myself, I enjoyed the look of it, I enjoyed the feel of it, I even enjoyed the cheesy musical number right smack dab in the middle of the movie, but what, what really pissed me off the most while watching it is that Universal didn't reference their own catalog of films when actually developing their failed dark universe. I think it would have been smart to make a, you know, like with the Tom Cruise mummy movie, make a standalone mummy movie, maybe make a sequel where we're at the end of the sequel, they pull a Nick Fury and kind of tie it into an overarching story. But while the second movie is going to come out, you come out with a, with, a, with a Wolfman movie, you come out with an Invisible Man movie. So all these movies have to have their foundation. And then with that foundation, you can start building bridges and interlocking these films in, in in one overarching story. I actually give Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman a 4 out of 5. I thoroughly enjoyed it with warts and all. It's entertaining as can be. The House of Frankenstein. I'm going to repay you for betraying me. I'm going to give that brain of yours a new home. In the skull of the Frankenstein monster. The uh, juggler vein is severed. Not cut, but torn apart as though by powerful teeth. A werewolf. Last night I killed a man. I didn't know what you were doing. But I did. I wanted to kill. I think they're after Dracula. 
Right, American uh, monster crossover horror film. This one, of course, starring Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney Jr., directed by Earl C. Kenton, written by Kurt Siodemak, and again, produced by Universal Studios as a sequel to Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman and Son of Dracula. Because now we got to bring Dracula into it. And they, I went back, actually, because I, I, I watched these over the weekend, and I wanted to see just what it was going to be like, how they would have advertised this. So I actually went back and watched the trailers just for just for fun, kind of get those refreshers and make sure I've got character instance in, in my head the right way. And they're literally counting five different monsters, one of which being the fucking Hunchback. That's... It's not a monster. It's not... I mean, yeah. This is when they literally just threw everything and the kitchen sink at this and like let's just do it all it's a battle royale of all the monsters of the different types of monsters of monster movies y'all this movie's stupid and it sucks that's just just the long and the short of it and maybe i probably shouldn't have watched them so close together that might have also been something to it but it was just it's very very clear that they are thoroughly thoroughly just doing anything and everything they can to just cash in on the idea of all these different guys oh well if you thought it was something to see them before oh no well we'll throw them all in and this time we'll even throw in the mad scientist into the mix we'll throw dracula into the mix and I, the the coolest thing about this movie for me the coolest thing about this movie is how they kill off dracula i was like now that's inventive. I would actually like to see some kind of update to this version of Killing Off Dracula. The movie is worth watching solely for that and not really for much else. Because they're just trying to re rehash the events from the previous movie. And as Tim pointed out, it's very anticlimactic. So are they trying to give you the real payoff this time? Eh, I guess technically it's a little bit better. I, get, I mean, there's a little more to it, but that's it. And sometimes less is more. And sometimes, like in the case of this movie, more is just simply too much. I give this one a two. Just track down the killing of Dracula scene from this movie and check it out because it's definitely interesting and I thought it was very clever. But it's done. I'm done. You know, And I like Boris Karloff. And I'm still done. Two. Bring us home, Tim. Boris Karloff, I thought, was the highlight of this movie. I didn't really prepare much to say about this film because it's definitely a take-it-or-leave-it film. It might actually be... Well, I guess it's tied for my least favorite, but it's. Um, I, I did enjoy Boris, Boris Karloff and the look of the film. Um, one thing we didn't mention, or maybe, Matt, you did mention this that the Frankenstein meets the Wolfman was the start of the B-grade Universal classic horror movies. So from then on out, all of these are the B-grade films that were that had that had that didn't have as big a uh, that didn't have a large budget you know they didn't spend as much time on with the house of dracula it actually came out within the same year it was rushed in to production uh the the i mean for those of you hoping to see more of frankenstein's monster actually doing stuff guess what he doesn't in fact most of the movie the first half of the movie focuses on Boris Karloff, his hunchback buddy partner, and Dracula. Dracula dies within the first, like, 35 minutes of the movie. 
or not even 35 minutes, maybe even just 30 minutes, and Frozen Larry Talbot and Frozen Frank Monster doesn't, they don't even appear until the 37 minute mark. So it's not really a sequel to any of these movies, really. It's just, I mean, it's more of like a, a weird anthology, but there's only two stories and something that really does pull these two movies together. It's kind of like, it's weird. It, like, Dracula was just a MacGuffin. He wasn't, didn't really serve too much of an, of a, of a, of a, of a purpose in the film. He was just there to be a name, I suppose. And if I remember correctly, I do believe this movie is actually better reviewed than Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, which annoys the hell out of me because I, I mean, I enjoyed House of Frankenstein just as an entertainment, you know, an entertaining piece of fluff, but at least Frankenstein meets the Wolfman has more bite to it, has more meat. What does make this movie worth watching, though, is, again, the character of Larry Talbot. I'm telling you, man, I hope this carries on into uh, House of Dracula. And, um, and Abbott, and in some way, maybe Abbott and Costello meet Dracula. I don't know how, but I've been enjoying seeing Larry Talbot get ever more so depressing and tragic. I mean, his character is the epitome of a modern day Greek tragedy. It's, it's crazy because he just wants to die and he can't. And nobody really ever takes himself seriously until it's way too late. It's just an absolute delight. I've, uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of Lon Chaney's movies, but there's just something heartbreaking about his character, and 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 especially House of Frankenstein. His screen time is minimal, but every time he's on the screen, there is a dynamic character there. You know, there is nuance, and it's worth. It, it's worth the time experiencing, and again, Boris Karloff. He's a good bad guy. Uh, I, I liked his death at the end of the movie, and it really shows you how dumb Frankenstein's monster is. I mean, it just takes him and Boris Karloff into a in, into their grave, which is of course quicksand. Uh, I, I thought that was very very interesting and 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 highly effective. So I'm gonna land on three out of five. I kind of want to give it a 3.5 out of 5, but eh, I don't know. I'm looking at my my uh, my grade of Werewolf of London, and it, I you know because I gave that one a three, I shouldn't give this one more than that. So three out of five for me. Right. Well, then you heard it here, folks. We have gone through our werewolf movies are early on Universal werewolf movies, and so next week's movies are going to be basically just Venom. Uh, is the official The Flicks movie for next week. But, as we noted, due to our copycat throwdown, we're also doing 2018's The Star is Born. So, feel free to join us next week for those. And I think, without further ado, it is now time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. 
What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Chump don't want to help, Chump don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive-ass dude don't got no brains in here. Did it feel good to say that? It actually it felt, did. It felt good yeah. to say that, didn't Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at... Uh, Facebook.com and ReverbNation.com both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as track us down in the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, please head on over to Patreon.com and check us out there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Rain Edwards, I get to say this. I love adventure and traveling and seeing and learning about different cultures, going out and having fun. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, farewell, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>